All right. Welcome, everyone, to Recreational Thinking Light, the new format we're, we've been trying out this weekend. Uh, uh, part of it is that we're we're kind of uh, rushing against the clock, so I'll skip having the contestants introduce themselves. I'll just tell you we have here Chris White, Dargan Ware, and Ben Kitchen, deep in shadow. Uh, and uh, all right, let's just start with uh, questions now. And again, this is all free form, so everyone, you know, work together, try to... Uh, don't have to be uh, formal about anything. Uh, yep. All right. So, uh, all right. So, you know those insects that are called ladybugs or ladybirds, if you're British. Who is the lady that they are named after? Oh. oh. Yeah. Okay. So, they wear red. They wear red. They're uh, famous ladies pretty far back, Lady Chatterley. Not no, that Lady Godiva is who I was thinking of, not Lady Charlie. Um Lady Okay, so who how about some some Lady Marmalade? British female zoologists or entomologists if we can that's, come up with them? Yeah, it's a good question. Um there's someone in Victorian era, it sounds like it might be from there, but maybe it's earlier. Hmm. I I don't have a great idea. I, I, is there any chance they're like, oh, Mary Queen of Scots was bloody and, but that, calling her a lady sounds mm -hmm. almost like an insult because she was much higher than that. I think. Right, right. It's a queen. Um. So, what about one of the um? Was it? I guess it was the the Yorks were the red roses, right, or were the Lancastrians the? Oh, that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, so one of the ladies that was before that was settled, like, isn't there like a Lady Margaret Tudor before the Tudors became? So I will, I will tell you, none of you are on the right track right now. <laughs> uh, so, Fantastic. So I'll, I'll give. Surprising. I'll give the first hint. Apparently, at least according to Wikipedia's account, the name was derived from the specifically the seven-spot ladybird, which had seven spots on it. Okay. Something so something with seven. Lady Liberty has seven um spikes on her tiara, I'm pretty sure, for the seven seas. That's, that's yeah. a better thing to go on than I've got. But this this would have been in, in Britain where <laughs> Good probably point. Okay. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the, these I'll give you next hint. The seven spots were said to symbolize seven joys and seven sorrows. Joys and sorrows. Is this something biblical? Maybe. Oh, that biblical or saints? Saint? Yeah. Life probably makes sense. Um. So it's biblical. You know, Mary. Or Magdalene, or so. All right, I'll just I'll I'll cut you off there so we can move to the next question. But it is it is what you just said. It is uh, the Virgin Mary. In fact, okay. in oh, in, in Germany, apparently the name for the insect is Marienkupfer. Uh, hmm. uh, all right, try this. Scott Jones and Alexandra Thomas currently live quietly together while raising their young daughter in the Perth suburb of Fremantle, Australia. But they are best known as the subjects of a 2011 photograph taken thousands of miles away in what city? Is this after the Vancouver riots? Are they the people who are making out in the streets? It is, and they are. Very good. Very nice. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Good job. 
All right. So at the time I wrote this question, uh, so this question, I mean, okay. So the question, as I originally wrote it, is Nora Tuomi, Tom Moore, and Paul Young are the main creative forces at what Irish animation studio, whose first three full-length films, The Secret of Kell, Song of the Sea, and The Breadwinner, were all nominated for the Best Animated Feature Oscar. Since then, they've made a fourth film called, I think, Wolf Walkers. Wolf which Walkers, is, yeah. Uh, which was also nominated for that Oscar. Do you remember what Irish. the studio is? Irish no. I, I remember Wolf Walkers and Book of Kells, and I have no idea what it's called. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know. Right. Animation right. studios. Nope. It's, it, it's not Ardman, and that's yeah. the only British <laughs> island thing I can think of. So, All right. It's not super guessable. This is Cartoon Saloon. Cartoon. Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right. So, uh, the, at uh, there, a structure at the base of St. John's Bridge in Portland's Cathedral Park was used for exterior shots of the Annex on what fantasy adventure TV series spun off from an earlier trilogy of telefilms that ran on the, ran on the TNT network from 2014 to 2018? TNT. So a trilogy of telefilms, and then that was a TNT series. Yep. Like uh, the, the Expanse is based on books, and I think that was sci-fi anyway. It was like Falling Skies around that, was, that time. I that was, was a TNT. TNT. Yeah, that was a, a famously a very expensive series. It didn't perform yeah, very well. And famously, not a very good series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so this this was made by many of the same people who made Leverage. I think there's some overlapping cast members. Oh. Annex. Yeah, and it is... Uh, is this the librarians? Maybe? No, it, it, is, it is the librarians, oh, it yes. Is the librarians. Very nice, oh, yes. <laughs> I was thinking the magicians, and I was like, it's not that. It's yeah. a very different show. I can, I can see how those would be confused, though. But yeah, I, I actually I spent some time walking around that structure, and it, it didn't click. And then at some point, I just kind of saw a part, a part of an episode, and I was like, wait a minute. I, I've, I've been there. Like, I've seen this shot before, but it didn't click. Cool. But now that I've been there, I suddenly recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In 1915, Cecil Chubb impulsively bought what at auction for 6,600 pounds as a gift for his wife. She did not appreciate it, and so he deeded it to the UK government. Could that be just like the Hope Diamond? Uh, I guess it could be, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I think she probably appreciates that. He bought all of Stonehenge. Uh, he, uh, he did, in fact, buy all of Stonehenge. Oh, <laughs> wow. nice. nice. All right, I'll uh, I'll put this one in the in the chat. Uh, the unusual spelling of what foodstuff, in particular the A that most Americans pronounce as an E, reflects its distal origins in ancient Egypt as a root extract from Althea officinalis. During the first half of the 20th century, this comestible was made via the starch mogul system. Nowadays, the Dumac extrusion process is used. Oh, I think I know this. I think this is marshmallow, which was originally... Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. 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 It did originally... Yeah. Yeah, the current current version of it has nothing to do with the marshmallow plant, but that is still where the name comes from. Yes, right. and that's why it's spelled marshmallow, even though literally everyone says marshmallow. marshmallow. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, have some uh, a pair of questions about the youngest legislator legislators in their uh, particular bodies. So the youngest person to ever sit in the House of Lords was Rupert Mitford, who 
basically when they reformed the House of Lords as the House of Lords Act of 1999, a bunch of people lost their seats and to kind of as a compromise, they made some of them life peers. So even though they wouldn't be able to pass the seat on to their offspring, they could still hold on to their seat as life peers. So uh, Rupert Mitford, Baron Reedsdale, who's sort of a, I think a grandnephew of the Mitford sisters, uh, he was only... Yeah, only 32 at the time, but he was created a life peer and became the youngest person to sit in the House of Lords. Now, I first became aware of Rupert Midford some years, be, uh, well, well, some years before I learned this fact. In uh, around 2007, I read a 2000, uh, an article in the New York Times magazine that chronicled his uh, his mass murder of what specific rodent species in the name of patriotism. Could it be like a gray squirrel because they're saving the British red squirrels or something? That is, makes sense. It, it, and it is correct. In addition Very to nice. Yes. <laughs> Good job. All right. So, so that's the youngest person in the House of Lords. Now going across the channel to France, in at the age of 20, in, in 2012, at the age of 22, who became the youngest person to uh, take a seat in France's National Assembly? It's got to be someone we've heard of. So yeah, it's going to be someone. Can you repeat what what year that was? In two in two thousand twelve, this person entered the National Assembly. Another thirty two. <clears throat> there were there were there were twenty two at the time. Yeah. So yeah, now right, they're so now they'd be thirty two. Right. Macron um, is older than that. Um, yeah. I think yeah. Marine Le Pen is older than that as well. Yeah. Yes, Marine Le Pen is, but who who else might represent a national, well, formerly National Front? Yeah, I, is it is it some Marine other Le Pen, Le Pen that I haven't heard of? Is? Probably. What was that? Some other Le, Le, Le Pen I haven't Child? heard. Of. I'm just gonna say Le Pen. <laughs> so that would have been uh, acceptable a few years ago. She actually no longer oh. uses the name Le Pen. Oh, jeez. Uh, pos- <laughs> yeah, this is uh, Marine Le Pen's yeah. niece, uh, Ma- Marianne Marachal. Okay. All right. Uh, so what consumer brand might prefer that you not know that it's named after the historic Nashville Hotel destroyed by fire in 1961 that in 1867 hosted the first national convention of the Ku Klux Klan? Maxwell House. Maxwell House. Yes. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh Two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle, was W.B. Yeats' poetic description of Eva Gorbuth and what sister of Eva Gorbuth. In 1918, this Irish revolutionary became the first woman ever elected to the UK House of Commons, although as an abstentionist, she refused to take her seat. Maud Gaughan? Yeah, that was a that was a common guess. Uh, yeah, Maud yeah. Gaughan, uh, she was she was associated with Yates. Her son, uh, I think, was Sean McBride, who later won the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. Uh, but uh, that's not the correct answer. Augusta Gregory. Uh, I, I don't know who that is, but that's also the uh, correct Lady Gregory was one of the founders of the uh, Abbey Theater with uh, Yates and Singh and all of them. Oh, cool. And so um, that's, uh, good to know, but unfortunately not correct. Uh, I think I, I gave my one good guess. <laughs> All right. Do we, is it a booth? Do we know any other uh, booths? I mean, as a, or, as, a, 
Wargorge. I was going to say, as a maiden name, maybe, but uh, I'm, I'm not, not, not famous. Yeah. yeah. Claire Booth Loose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that that uh, crossed my mind, and I was like, wait, no. <laughs> that, that wasn't answered in the previous episode, but you're one, one episode too late for that one. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, so this, all right. This is uh, Khan Markovich, uh, sometimes called Countess Markovich. Okay, she, I've heard that name. She was married to someone who styled himself a count. Uh, all right. Uh, what Steinberg Kelly song did John Stamos record as part of a duet for the CBS sitcom Dreams in 1984, three years before it became a U.S. number one hit for a different act? All right. 1987 number ones. Oh, Kokomo. Uh, no, not Kokomo. Oh, wait, Kokomo <laughs> was 88. Wait. Yeah, and Kokomo was written by a bunch yeah, of like John yeah. Phillips and. Uh, yeah. and jo- I just remember, I just had the flash that John Stamos, like very briefly, I think, played the drums for the Beach Boys or something. And the bongos, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yes, the bongos. <laughs> yeah. wow. All right, 1987 number ones. It feels gettable. Um, it seems like it should be gettable, but not by me. Yeah, part, part, <laughs> of, a, part of a duet. Um, yeah, islands that, in the stream. Yeah, there, there were five uh, Steinberg Kelly songs that hit number one in the in the eighties, uh, which did not include uh, the Pretenders' "I'll Stand by You" or "Divinals I Touch Myself," which were songs they wrote but didn't hit number one. <laughs> yep. Uh, but they also they did hit number one with Madonna's "Like a Virgin." Uh, Cindy Lauper's True Colors, Whitney Houston's So Emotional, The Bangles' Eternal Flame, and this song. Oh, are they the people, are they like the, is this, are these the, are Steinberg and Kelly the people who went on to be that band Boy Meets Girl because uh, uh, Whitney Houston didn't want to record like Waiting for a Star to Fall? Uh, that them? I, I don't know, that, I don't know, that, that's, uh... okay. <laughs> I I don't know. It looks like Boy Meets Girl was George Merrill and Shannon Rubicam. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I had to Google that. Um, um Like a Virgin. Oh I wonder if it would have been a duet. Okay, so song. so the so the hit was not a duet. the hit was by an all female band. Um We Got the Beat. Uh <laughs> it was by our actually no, I'm wait, no, it wasn't an no, it wasn't an all-female. Just a band whose uh, front, who, whose uh, front women were were women. Mm-hmm. Um, um, heart. These oh, dreams. Yeah. It it is not these dreams, but is it, it alone? Is, it is alone. Alone. Okay. Very nice. Yes. All right. Uh, try this. Uh, I think I asked a, a version of this on the podcast. I didn't really like how it played. Well, let's see if uh, let's see if I can make it play better here. Uh. Long before he single-handedly wrote and directed the acclaimed BBC miniseries The Shadow Line, The Honorable Woman, and Black Earth Rising, Hugo Blick appeared in a 1989 Hollywood blockbuster as what villainous character, whose name derived from the historical moniker of William de la Pole, first Duke of Suffolk. The better-known version of this character from that film was, played by, was portrayed by a different, much more famous actor. Hmm. 1989 blockbuster. 89. Could this be like the like the sheriff of Nottingham and like Robert that's what I was thinking. Oh, like, 
that's, yeah. a, that's a good guess, though. I'm not sure that was the year for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but around then. Yeah, but... no, I think I think that was a year or two later. But William came to mind. The villainous character based on William Dillapult. The better known version. Of, so the better known version of this character from that film. So yeah, there's more than one iteration. Yeah, like time travel maybe. Or just like a flashback. Yeah, it's a, it it is a flashback. Uh, so, so Hugo Blick portrays him in a flashback. Yes. Okay. okay. And, is there and... a Dracula version? Mm, I think Dracula is Vlad Tepish. Yeah, I think I think Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula is from a few. Yeah. So, yeah. so that yeah that that part is just about the the name. Um, it may not if that may be misleading. Yeah, but thinking about yeah, nineteen eighty nine Hollywood blockbuster who had a villain whose appearance changed at some point during the narrative. So, like a werewolf. Maybe, oh, what, or... did he play like the? The Joker pre-accident in Batman? I think Batman he, was 89. He did, yes. Okay. Do you, do you remember what the character was called? Uh, I was going to say Red Hood, but in the <laughs> in the, in the the movie, oh, God, what was the name of the, what was the Joker's name in Batman? Um, I have no recollection. All right. He was called Jack Napier. Yes, That's right. Which That's I, right. I've always assumed was a play on Jack and Apes, which is uh, – uh, a term for yeah, just like a I don't know a rogue or scoundrel or whatever, but derived mm-hmm. from the, the nickname of uh, of William Delapole. Okay. All right. The series of 1928 standardized the portraits that appear on U.S. Federal Reserve notes. These include Salmon P. Chase on the ten thousand dollar bill, and which three presidents on the five hundred, one thousand, and five thousand dollar bills? I'm pretty sure one of those is Grover Cleveland. Um... Cleveland's on one. Um... Uh, one of the Harrisons on like I Benjamin, think Benjamin probably Benjamin. Yeah, Benjamin Harrison is one of them. Benjamin would make the most sense. And no, uh, Benjamin Harrison is not one of them. Okay. okay. Um. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, maybe they liked him. Uh, I'm I'm sure they did, but it, he's he's not there. Although the yeah, yeah um, maybe a little soon for him. So it's probably not going to be like Rutherford B. Hayes or Madison, maybe. So Madison is on. Back- Madison, Madison is on yeah. the five is on the five thousand. Cleveland, I always have to remember that. I finally remembered. Oh wait, Cleveland had two terms, so he was on the one thousand because he had more terms than the person on the five hundred. Right. Uh, do you remember who was on the five hundred? So someone with a one termer, um, John Adams. Could have been McKinley. It was uh, oh, t- technically okay. not technically not one term. I think he was he was killed one, during his second. Yeah. Term. One. One. one of the yeah. Uh, but yes, it was McKinley. Yes. Uh, all right. Let's just try. I think again. I think this is this is. I think maybe one I asked in kind of the cinema question, uh, the the all cinema episode, but it it sort of uh, played a little limply there. Um, <laughs> about what legendary Hollywood director did Ray Manzarek say his vision of sophistication and the darker side of the human condition was perhaps the single greatest influence on the music of the Doors? This man taught both Manzarek and Jim Morrison at UCLA Film School. I remember this question from the podcast. Oh my goodness! Um, I mean, it's it's not like Hitchcock or, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds like it could be, but it's somebody famous, but not that famous. 
So it's, it's got to be someone who could have reasonably taught the doors. Yeah, uh, I mean, so teaching early 60s at yeah, UCLA. Yes. Probably direct around like it, the 40s and 50s. Um, yeah. yeah so, when he teaching? That's an, a fun thought. But yeah, this is someone who's, who's directing career wrapped up by the 50s, but isn't really okay. remembered for anything he hit, which is why he was teaching, but isn't really remembered for anything he did after like the 30s or so. James or, Whale? Good guess, but this is again, uh, uh, yeah, visual vision of sophistication. So someone known for the, when I'm yeah. visual, someone known for the visuals of their movies uh, and and kind of the op, de depicting opulence, very and uh, or, or I think probably worked in the silent era, but maybe all, early sound era, uh, maybe most of him. Busby Berkeley wasn't a director, I don't think. He just choreographed stuff. That, but that is opulent. I, I, feel, I feel like Busby Berkeley would not be the dark side of the human condition. Yeah. <laughs> I, when, I, when I think Busby Berkeley, I think The Doors. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so Busby sure. Berkeley did direct a film noir, and I don't remember what it was called. Uh, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Why? <laughs> uh, it was called They Made Me a Criminal. <laughs> yeah, okay. yes. They forced me to do all those choreographed routines. They made me murder that man. Uh, um, but yeah, this uh, is someone uh, worked, uh, had a famous star who they worked with quite a bit uh, in the early sound era. Yeah. This is someone who, who helped uh, shape the screen image of uh, Marlena Dietrich. It's, it's a, I, I think it's a German name. It's not necessarily. It, a it's a very. Name. A very German-sounding name, yes. Yeah, I don't know if it's a German person or not. Yeah, he was like just. Uh, I don't think of German-named people. It could be like long, could it? I mean, after I know he worked really early. But... Who? Uh, oh, the, the guy that did like Fritz Long. Know, Fritz Long, oh. yeah, yeah. He, yeah. I mean, uh, no, you, um, that's, but, but I mean, I, that's a good guess, but. Uh, but yes, it's not. So it's not. It's not Eric von Stroheim, uh, who's the one who. It's it's very easy to confuse with Eric von Stroheim. Oh, uh, Josef von von Sternberg. Sternberg. Von Sternberg. Okay. Yep. I've I've definitely seen that. Yeah, and now that I say it, I'm having a flash of someone in. Uh, my name is Dolomite. Having a. a and did or uh, Dolomite is my name. Rather, I always get yes. that backwards. Uh. Now I want to. Did his son work on Dolomite? I have. I'm starting. Wow. Uh, um. Yeah. Okay. So. So the. I think. Yeah. I think. Um. Like the DP or something on Dolomite was named Nicholas Josef von Sternberg, and I'm wondering nice. if that. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I think that was his son. Jeez. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. So I'm making runs with the family. Yeah. yeah, that uh, okay. I, I should have I should have made the question about that, but uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, so who's uh, what? What woman's um, oft anthologized short story, "A Jury of Her Peers" from 1917, is often described as the first feminist work of detective fiction? She also won a Pulitzer Prize for the play *Allison's House*. I have read that multiple times. Um. It's not Catherine Mansfield, but I think it might be Catherine something. Um, Catherine uh, Porter? It's, it's not. Uh, it's not. Not Catherine. Not Catherine. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, she and, and her husband thinking, were, were the nucleus of what was called the Davenport Group in Iowa before they're going. They're from Iowa, yeah. Um, yeah. Not Charlotte Gilman. Iowans. Uh, before, <laughs> yeah, going to the Northeast and founding the, the Provincetown Players, which is where Eugene O'Neill got his start. Yes, oh, I know yeah. who this person is, and I'm completely drawing <laughs> Um so... It's not. No, it's not. All right. Uh, so her name. Uh, her name was uh, Susan Glassbell. Susan Glassbell. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the story. She also adapted, I think, into a play called Trifles, and it's been made into a few short films. Uh, yep. But, yeah. All right. So. Uh, and most law professors make you read it the first semester. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I, it showed up in multiple anthologies. I when I first was getting into like detective fiction as a kid, and it it showed up in multiple anthologies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So I've, I've asked before about the the uh, the AOC of the 70s, uh, Elizabeth Holtzman, who at the age of 31 upset the uh, the, the Emanuel Seller, the congressman who'd held his seat for 50 years uh, and in a, the primary uh, and uh, later uh, won, won the Democratic primary for the Senate seat in 1980 against Bess Meyerson, the former Miss America, but lost to Alphonse D'Amato in the general election after mm-hmm. uh, Jacob K. Javits split the vote. But uh, before that, when she was in Congress, uh, Holtzman famously filed a lawsuit, Holtzman v. Schlesinger, I believe, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. What specifically was she suing to injunct? Schlesinger is going to be like, that's the publisher of the New York Times. So that was, I thought it was Sulzberger. Right? Oh, no, you're, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Sulzberger. Uh, so Schlesinger, I mean, famous as Arthur Schlesinger, but that might not be the person she's suing. Um, it could be though, if, if he's going to publish some sort of historical thing that she finds defamatory, um, so, so Schlesinger in this case was James R. Schlesinger. Okay. Not a name I've heard. Okay, so I mean, if if you're a congressperson, you're suing to injunct something. That could be, Schlesinger could be, you know, the head of some minor uh, government agency, you, you know, some yeah. IRS or, uh, you know, EPA or that. Well, sort of I, thing. I will tell you, Schlesinger was in fact the head of a very major government agency. Okay. Okay. Uh, in fact, he was a member of the cabinet. What was the year? Uh, 1970, uh, I think it was decided in 73. Yeah, 73. Okay, so this would like be... Like Pentagon? Pentagon Papers, maybe? It is, it is uh, Department of Defense. I mean, so okay, so Schlesinger was the Secretary of Defense. Uh, uh, right, she, okay. Yeah, she actually was much more ambitious than that. She actually sued to prevent the U.S. bombing of Cambodia. Oh! Okay. Wow, nice. Okay, Yes, a, a very a huge. I'm glad to learn that. Yeah, David and Goliath battle, and I, I'd love to see a movie yeah. about this. It's yeah. you know obviously oh, yeah. it was it was doomed to fail from the beginning because those decisions aren't really justiciable. But like, it's still an incredible thing to have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. All right, uh, let's. Okay, so uh, just a quick pop culture one. Uh, and the woman now known as Elizabeth Hasselback uh, competed on Survivor. What was her name? No, that's that's kind of a, you either know it or you don't. Yeah, so it was uh, called Elizabeth Filarski. Here's one that's 
Yeah. Uh, here's a different, completely unrelated. The Celtic water god Aurausio is the ultimate source of the name of which currently ruling royal house? Aurausio. Aurausio. Uh, Aranwes? Is, is there, are they still ruling something? What, what did you yeah. say? Aranwes? Or... Uh, no. Okay, no. Aurausio. Um... Assad. Uh, <laughs> what's the, what's the yes. no, Royal House? I'll just say the, the Assad's. What's the house in Spain? Is it, it's not it's not still bourbon, is it? No, but is it I'm wondering I, is it actually that's yeah, I, I did know that, okay, but I, so I who, should uh Arousio. I mean it doesn't sound anything like Grimaldi. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are what are the other houses? I mean, there's only Not like the Cobra which is Windsor, or um, Portuguese. Right now, that Braganza is not still a thing. Oh wait, know. is it? Is it the House of Orange? It is the House of Orange. Oh, yeah. oh very nice. All right. Uh, unrelated question. Uh, Maraki Allegheny Valley School, which provides homes and services to individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, is funded by royalties from what piece of sports merchandising? So, Allegheny so, Valley. I mean, it sounds like it's in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. So, I mean, the terrible towel? It is the terrible towel. Oh, nice. Very nice. Uh, Okay, this um hmm. All right, let's try this. After much speculation, the original meaning of Steve Miller's enigmatic lyric about the pompatus of love was uncovered by what linguistic sleuth and Emmy-winning actor when he was contacted by Vernon Green of the Medallions while promoting the film The Pompatus of Love. The linguistic sleuth and Emmy-winning actor. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, also the, does movies as well as television. Because yeah, the the pop the pompadus of love line was ripped off from somewhere else. Um, from from Vernon Green of the Medallion. Yes, context. yes. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, let's go with James Earl Jones. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. So the pompadus. I think this was a movie. I don't. I don't think he directed it. He did. Um, I think he, he did write it, perhaps, uh, and in addition to starring in it. Uh, but Brian Cranston. Yes. Reginald Bell Jobs. <laughs> it is, uh, according to Wikipedia, it tells the story of four guys discussing women and the meaning of the word pompatus. Oh, what a great, <laughs> what a great movie. Oh, my God. How, how, how many Bob Oscars Steiger. did this win? Four guys, I don't know, Frankie Discussing Valley, women and the definition women. of pompatus. All right. So this is uh, someone who, who uh, at least one of his Emmys, I think, can be chalked up to sympathy for having to work with a particularly uh, uh, difficult to work with co-star. Reginald Vell Johnson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Did anyone win an Emmy for Elf? Uh... <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's more recent, the two thousand two thousands twenty first century. Uh, so okay, so that film was uh, was co written and starred John Cryer. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. difficult co star. 
All right. So, uh, okay. So in 1965, when uh, UNICEF was uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, it was accepted by Henry Richardson Labouis Jr., who became the who became the fifth member of what family to earn a Nobel Prize? Any chance he's the fifth? Like, was he related to the Curies at all? I know a bunch he of them was, had. He was married to Eve Curie, the daughter of Marie Curie. Yes. It, it isn't there. There was some like crossword I did where it was like, oh, this person's both their parents and their spouse and their daughter and their one Nobel prizes and they didn't. And I just I feel <laughs> bad for her. Uh, yeah, yeah. F. F. Curie lived to be like a hundred and something, like she into triple digits, which raises a question of how how long her family <laughs> might have lived if they hadn't been exposed to so much radiation. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, my laptop. Kind of move so right I can plug in my uh, computer just a second. All right, We're, I have about six minutes left. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, Mary. Schmitch, Schmitch, never, never learned how to say that name. Actually, uh, is best known for her 1997 Chicago Tribune column, "Advice Like Youth Wasted on the Young," which Baz Luhrmann turned into the spoken word hit "Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen." However, she also scripted what comic strip, which began in 1940, from 1985 until its 2011 demise. Kathy. Not Kathy. Kathy, I think is, is I think Kathy's still going, or at least Okay. Yeah, that started more recently. Is is Mary Worth still going? I think it is. I think that's a really old strip. Uh yeah. Uh, um now this is one where the occupation of the main character is um in the title of the the strip. Brenda Starr Reporter. It is Brenda Starr oh, Reporter. Very nice. Very nice. Right. What heavily saline lake in Djibouti with a, sh a shore that is the lowest point on land in Africa should not be confused with the large reservoir in Syria named for Syria's <laughs> longtime ruling family? Assad. Assad? <laughs> so, so what is, uh, but what's the African lake called? I thought it was Assad with one S. Nope. No. So, is like Assadi or Azad with a Z? No, it's uh, it's Assal, A S S A L. Ah, okay, okay. A salty lake. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Good, good, good mnemonic. There we uh, go. All right. The iconic Monty Python foot, animated by Terry Gilliam for Monty Python's Flying Circus, is officially known as the foot of whom, reflecting its origins in a 16th century painting by Agnolo Bronzino. God. <laughs> <laughs> Goliath. Now, what was Bronzino's famous painting? Who did Cupid? So yes, it is Cupid. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, I think. I think based on that painting, of people just guessing, they would probably guess folly because of the the comedic uh, the connotation. The foot of folly. Yeah. Yes, but but it is actually the foot of Cupid. Uh, is Cupid, Venus, folly, and time. Is that the the, the painting? Yes. Or uh, uh, Venus? Is it Venus, Cupid, folly, and time, or Cupid, Venus? Yeah, I think it's Venus, that. Cupid, folly. Yeah. And time. Nice. Okay. All right. Uh, the brand name Avino derived from Avina Sativa, which is the scientific name for what? Isn't Sativa oatmeal? A, um, so oh. well, well, it's a science. So if it's a binomial, oats. well, it would be oats. Yes, oats. Yeah, oh. yeah not oatmeal, oats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, 
durable relief pitcher Ed, everyday Eddie Guardado, known for his 11 seasons with the Minnesota Twins, is the father of actor Nicky Guardado, who played a young version of what Philadelphia Philly star on the Goldbergs? Oh, so who? Like, Goldbergs okay, is so 80 Goldbergs, set. Yeah, it would be sort of so. A young version then, so it'd be somebody relatively recent, like I don't know, Maybe Chase, Chase Utley? Utley? I don't know. Um, if it was lesser, I mean, I don't know how much younger it would have to be. I mean, I guess it could be like Lenny Dykstra or somebody from the 90s, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Bryce Harper's too recent, probably. Yeah, the Goldberg is set in the 80s, uh, yeah. So, the, so this uh, would be somebody who became famous after that right i think so yeah we'd have to be yeah um yes so so this is someone who who later became the general manager of the phillies in fact oh oh so did mike schmidt come back to the no no he would have been already famous um wow who yes. has GM'd the Phillies? I, I used to know this, and I don't. It's Eddie Guardado. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is uh, so. This is uh, and it's kind of a running joke because they always refer to him as Ruben Amaro Jr. Uh, even though you know, if he actually as kind of a joke, because if you were you know, if you were just a kid, he'd probably just be called by one name. But they always refer to him as Ruben Amaro Jr. But. Uh, <laughs> His father, Ruben Amaro Sr., has been played a couple times on the Goldbergs by the real Ruben Amaro Jr. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. Maybe one or let's see if we can get one or two more in. Uh, the 1968 Blue House raid saw 31 members of Unit 124 attempt to assassinate the leader and de facto dictator of what nation? South Korea has a Blue House, right? Yes, and it is South Korea. So yep. they were from from North Korea, and uh, they were. Ah. Uh, yes. Uh, all right. So, uh, can we get in one, one last one? Yeah, we got, right. we got so, a minute. Okay. All, right. all right. The video. Okay. So the video for "All I Need Is a Miracle" and Mike and the Mechanic sees the band's manager, played by Roy Kinnear, intimidated by nightclub owner, played by Victor Spinetti. This marked a reunion for uh, Foot Professor Foot and his bumbling assistant Algernon from what 1965 movie? Professor Foot and Professor Foot rings a huge bell. That's the wrong year for musical rock rock musical. Tommy? No, see, nine sixty five. Mm. Tommy was seventy five. Oh, yes, uh, like the, the Yellow Submarine or one of those Beatles movies. Yeah, it is, uh, well, oh. it, but sixty five. Which one was the one from sixty five? Hard Day's off. Night was a movie. Hard Day's Night was sixty four. Help! Okay. Help! Help! Uh, help! Uh, <laughs> You needed somebody, but not just anybody to help you answer that. <laughs> we needed <laughs> Professor Foot. <laughs> all right. Well, thank, thank you all for joining me. This has no been problem. Very fun. Yeah, yeah, it was great fun. Thank you. All right. Now we just need to wait, wait out until uh, Zoom. <laughs> <laughs>